You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The first pediatric cochlear implant was approved by the FDA in 1990. The initial approved age for children was two years old, then 18 months old in 1998, and 12 months in 2000. In May of this year, 30 years after the first implant was approved, the FDA approved pediatric cochlear implantation for children starting at nine months of age. Researchers continue to expand our understanding of who is a cochlear implant candidate, as well as improving outcomes for pediatric recipients. Today's guest is one of those excellent researchers. Dr. Lisa Park is an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her clinical research focuses on expanding cochlear implant indications for children who are deaf and hard of hearing. She investigates optimal programming for children who are considered non-traditional pediatric cochlear implant recipients and associated outcomes on measures of speech perception, spatial hearing, and quality of life. As an audiologist that works with cochlear implants, I am so grateful to Dr. Park and her team for their efforts and so excited to be discussing this discussing this really exciting topic. So Dr. Park, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dakota. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is like a really uh, buzzy topic in the world of pediatric audiology right now is this, you know, updated pediatric candidacy. And it seems like it's just the the criteria changes all the time. Yeah. And it's a long time coming and we still have so much more work to do. Yes. And I, I'm interested to ask you this a little bit later, but I know the U.S. tends to lag behind the rest of the world when it comes to things like this. So I'm interested to hear kind of how far behind we are and where we have to go, I guess, where we have to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what, what, the research we do, we look mostly at three different aspects in pediatric candidacy that we're trying to expand. One being single-sided deafness, um, the other being the age of hearing loss, I, I mean, age of cochlear implantation. So looking at those babies under 12 months of age um, and kids with greater levels of residual hearing. And so where I think the U.S. really lags behind is that age of implantation, mm-hmm. um, you know, other countries, especially in Australia, you know, they're implanting kids at six months of age. Actually, they talk about switch on and activation days happening at six months of age. So they might wow. be even doing them younger than that. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, I think in the U.S., we do such a good job pursuing that 136 um, with kids who use hearing aids. And we forget about the kids who need cochlear implants. You know, 136 kind of leaves them in the dust. Absolutely. Um, if they're not getting the access they need for spoken language. So, we absolutely need to get that age as young as is safe. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a great insight. So before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of, of what's going on in terms of pediatric cochlear implants, um, I feel like you have a really unique role in that you are a clinical audiologist in AUD, but you serve, as far as I understand, a primarily research role. So could you give me a little bit of background of how you got to that point? We have a few listeners who are always asking me, could you have people talk a little bit more about like how they got to where they are? Because there's so many aspects of audiology and so many different specialties and they just want to know more about those things. I feel like you have a really interesting perspective. Yeah. So I've been pretty lucky in my career that I've really um, been in places that focus on listening and spoken language for children who have profound hearing loss. Um, so I did my uh, master's at um, Central Institute for the Deaf at WashU, um, and then I went to Clark School, and that's where I did my fellowship year and spent the next three years um, working with kids who had cochlear implants up there and kids who have profound hearing loss. Um, and then I came down here to North Carolina, and I worked in the clinic with the Children's Cochlear Implant Center um, for over a decade, and they were looking for, you know, I had been dipping my toes into some research there. We have such a huge population um, that we're able to access and such wonderful families that really want to be able to um, expand things to other kids and, and share what they know and what they've learned. Um, so 
had done a little bit of research there and they were looking for somebody to be full-time with the research team. And so um, it just seemed like a natural fit. And so I've been able to just fall into that. Um, it's really great because we really marry the clinical side of things and the research side of things together. So we sure, work really sure. closely with our clinical team um, and being just in the same space, it's, we can just kind of feed off of each other and see, you know, what we notice, what, what needs to be done, what do we need to work on? And so it's, it's a really great um, collaboration. That's awesome. Okay, not to scare anyone away, but how much of your hit, uh, statistics education has had to come into play? I actually took some classes in the last <laughs> couple of years through the university. Yeah. So yeah, it's been it's been I've, I've been the old lady in class, but that's okay. I've learned a lot. I have some really great mentors and some support. So, but yeah, I absolutely had to go back to school and do my math. <laughs> I believe it. I know so there's so many people, I, I, myself included, early on in my AUD program where I was like, Mm, that research is really interesting to me. I think this is going to be pretty cool. And then you get thrown into your statistics courses and you're like, okay, maybe not for me. Maybe yeah. I should stick to more clinical. But it's nice when you've been in the clinic and then you go back to do that sort of a thing, because even sitting in you know statistics classes, it makes you think about the way you're going to design your research and it really gets you back from the ground up. So it's not that terrible. Got it. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like having that research or that clinical background is really helpful. You don't have to stress so much about learning all this new clinic knowledge. You can really soak in the stats. Right, right, right. Awesome. So um, before we get into kind of the, the research that your team is putting out and kind of these new guidelines, would you mind breaking down a little bit of, I kind of mentioned at the beginning how the, back in 1990, we had the guideline of about two years old was the earliest implanted, you know, age. Uh, could you break down a little bit kind of how we got to where we are, just like kind of a brief recap and and what you see, uh, how you see candidacy expanding the most recently? Yeah, sure. So um, like you mentioned, you know, implants uh, were FDA approved for kids in 1990 and you had to be two at that time and you really had to be, have profound bilateral hearing loss and no speech understanding. And then it took us eight years just to shave six months off of that age. Um, so it, it took a long time just to get a little bit younger. Um, and then we got six months younger, um, about 12 years after that in 2000. Um, and then it's had it's been 20 more years until we took three more months off of it. And even then wow. we're at nine months. And, and there are a lot of us that would like to see it even younger than nine months. Um, I think one of the things that stayed pretty stagnant and that's pretty disappointing is the degree of hearing loss um, that you have to have to be for FDA approval, at least. Um, and what we've seen in adults is that there's less and less hearing loss required to be able to qualify for a cochlear implant. So we know in adults who have already established language that it's still difficult for them to understand with those sloping hearing losses and um, lesser degrees of hearing loss. So it's it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we expect children to learn language with greater degrees of hearing loss than adults would need to be able to qualify for a cochlear implant, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so w we really would like to see um, some expansion in those um those audiometric guidelines and, and especially speech understanding. We look a lot at that in terms of qualification um, more so than just what your numbers are on that chart. We want to know what your speech understanding is. What, what are you actually doing with those hearing aids? Sure. And I know one of the, one of the more like vague terms, especially when we go for the younger uh, end of, of the pediatric candidacy spectrum um, is, you know, uh, demonstrating no benefit with, you know, well-fit or traditional amplification um, and I know that's sort of a vague term and different teams kind of interpret that different ways. I wonder, has that been something that's changed over time? Do you feel like that's become more strict or less strict, this idea of, you know, demonstrating benefit with hearing aids? I think when you look at the large centers, especially academic centers, um, I think that we have loosened that up in terms of our own teams over time. We look at the whole child. So we're looking at um, speech understanding. We're looking at um, how well are they functioning in school? How well is, is their speech and their language progressing? Um, what we see a lot of these days are really bright kids who can fill in the gaps um, and aren't 
meeting their full potential. So they really can do more. Um, they might have okay spoken language skills, but really they're not able to access sound the way that they need to for learning. Um, and they can do a whole lot more. So we've seen kids who, you know, were doing adequately and got a cochlear implant and now they're in the gifted program. So um, it's kids like that, that we don't want to lose track of particularly. Sure. Um, and even, you know, those kids that just have some articulation issues because they don't have any access to high frequency sounds or they have a slight language delay because they don't hear an S. So they're missing out on all of those really important grammatical markers in English. Um, so yeah, those are kids we're really trying to reach um, with expanded candidacy. And those are kids who would meet that not making adequate progress, except that adequate progress now is not meeting your potential rather than not understand, understanding less than 20% open set words. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, like a completely different criteria. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 20% word. That's not a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. That's much harder to meet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know, so the most recent things I can think of um, in terms of expanded criteria are uh, this nine month cutoff or, or not cutoff, but nine month, you know, qualifying age for implantation. Um, what moves are we seeing in, so the other two criteria you mentioned are, uh, you know, degree of hearing loss and then things like single-sided deafness. What kind of progress are we seeing on those fronts in terms of, you know, possibilities as, as um, options for, you know, qualifying for candidacy? Mm -hmm. So MedL received um, FDA approval for single-sided deafness and asymmetric hearing loss for implantation of their device um, for kids that are five years of age and older. Um, yes. And was that, that this year or last year? That was last year. So that was okay. in 2019. Yeah. Um, and for that indication, you have to be five um, and have a profound unilateral hearing loss. So we already are pushing the, pushing the boundaries on that. Um, we have a study that we're finishing up right now that we started uh, kids who were three and a half. Um, when they got their implants that had single-sided deafness. Um, and we had a moderate to profound hearing loss was our criteria. Um, and we had a little bit of an expansion in terms of speech understanding. You could go up to 20%. Um, but um, it, they were all kids that really did have profound hearing loss. But um, we, we look at each ear individually in terms of um, how we think they would be able to meet candidacy. So it's really exciting to see that single-sided deafness um, indication because it's really helping kids a lot in terms of listening effort and and focus and especially localization. That's just, it's that it, localization makes such a big impact in a kid's life. Just being able to know where sounds are coming from helps not only with safety, but communication as well. So we know that basically for two years and younger that we have to be bilateral sensory neural profound hearing loss. But in that, you know, two and up uh, young child age range, then it's severe to profound sensory neural. So do we feel like this is something that's going to be changing? Is that something that still seems pretty locked in? I sure hope so. Um, right now, that's what the FDA criteria are. That's what the indications are. Um, but we're a part of a couple of studies, one being a multi-center study and another one um, being an in-house study where we're looking at kids who have greater degrees of residual hearing um, and seeing how well they do with cochlear implants. Um, one of the things that we like to keep in mind is that a lot of times people are hesitant to recommend a cochlear implant because they think that um, a cochlear implant means you're going to lose all your residual hearing. We're, we're getting better and better at that, um, but there is still a chance that you could lose your residual hearing. So we're very careful about not recommending a cochlear implant unless we think you're still going to do better with this cochlear implant than you would with your hearing aid, regardless of whether you keep your hearing or not. So there's still kids that would qualify for a cochlear implant, and that's mostly because we look at um, residual hearing, not so much what your residual hearing levels are, but what your speech understanding is. How well are you okay. understanding speech to be able to um, learn spoken language with a hearing aid? Because you could have, you know, moderate to severe, moderate to profound hearing loss, or we even have some kids that we've given implants to who have normal low frequency thresholds, but they don't have enough high frequency hearing to really understand speech. So we hope yeah, to see that expand for sure. Yeah, I, I I completely agree, and I think that is something that so often gets lost in that that scary talk when you're talking about cochlear implants with this thought of you know losing whatever hearing you have. It's when you really you wouldn't be necessarily qualifying unless you know 
you'd be better off with your cochlear implant in terms of speech and language development or word understanding if it's an adult, um, you know, compared to using hearing aids. I think that oftentimes the, the thought of losing something is a lot scarier and understandably so, but when you really compare it to, you know, what you're missing in your day to day and in your ability to, you know, make sense of speech and spoken language, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I've been shocked at sometimes, you know, we'll have kids who keep their residual hearing in the beginning and then they might lose their residual hearing a little bit over time. And, and it's really rare that we have a patient who will really be as upset about that as I would expect that they would, because they're doing so well with their cochlear implant that it's like, oh, that's a bummer. Well, at least I can still hear with my implant. And it's, it's it makes that big of a difference in their life that it, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're hearing better than they were before their implant. Absolutely. And in some cases that I've seen, it's even more stability, like a, a child with EVA, where they fluctuate somewhere between a qualifying and not qualifying hearing loss. Well, eventually that fluctuation is going to be a detriment to their speech and language development, just as much as, you know, some not having as much residual hearing. That that stability of a cochlear implant every day, rather than having to reprogram a hearing aid anytime their hearing loss fluctuates, it makes a lot more sense for them in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. You can't reprogram that hearing aid every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, not that you have any hard and fast rules set yet, but... Uh, for current audiologists who don't work with cochlear implants or um, don't regularly do any like candidacy testing, what kind of like red flags could they be looking out for that would be helpful for them to know, okay, it might be a good idea to make that referral um, to for a candidacy evaluation or to a cochlear implant audiologist? Yeah, so we have some in-house referral guidelines that we've worked with our um, team to create. So for our diagnostic hearing aid audiologists, um, so they have their own red flags that they look out for. Um, and we look at these in terms of individual ears. So any child with a no response AVR, um, we want to see them referred as quickly as possible. Um, for kids who are seen within our system, that's pretty, pretty easy to do. Um, but when they're referred to us from outside the system, they can get rough because um, we want to repeat that AVR. Um, and we would love to do that in a um, natural sleep AVR. So the earlier, the better, so we can get that done. Um, sure. And that way they can make their way out to us and we can get them implanted as early as possible. Um, so a no response AVR, for sure, we want to make sure we get those kids um, referred as quickly as possible. Um, and in terms of those non-traditional candidates, we have a pure tone average of 65 dB or poorer um, for a referral for a um, candidacy evaluation. So that's a guideline there. Um, we okay. also look at high frequency thresholds at 2, 4, and 8 of 70 dB or poorer. Um, and then a speech intelligibility index um, of 60 or poorer. Um, and we also look at things like little ears, if those are lower than expected, or a functional okay. listening index. Um, those are some tests that have a little bit of some normative data, so you can kind of know um, auditorily this is what we would expect them to be able to do at this stage. And if they're not making progress there and they're really young and not old enough to do any open set word recognition, um, then we want to get them sent for referral as well. So we can do a whole evaluation looking at the whole child. Got it. That um, SII of, um, I think you said 60, is that for average inputs? Yes. So that's for average okay. input. And we really, I mean, we see that as a red flag, but we know that sure. those, those are going to be, you know, inflated for kids. So um, we set it at 60 is just kind of a place to start for now. And that's somewhere we'll probably go back and, um, and look at. And we also look at um, a CNC, aided CNC word scores of 60% or poorer um, in either okay. ear. So that's just for referral guidelines. So that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a cochlear implant candidate, but that's kind of a red flag or a signal to say, all right, let's, you know, get you hooked in with the implant team, see how things are going um, and see if this is something that will be able to help you reach your goals um, better than a hearing aid would. Yeah, that's great. That, I think that's really easy to remember too. Everything in the 60s, if mm -hmm, they're, you know, mm -hmm. pure tone averages, 60s are worse. Aided CNCs, worse than 60. SII, I think that just keeps it pretty easy to yeah. remember. I think that's a great, that's a, there's a, I can picture some infographics in my mind that would be really <laughs> helpful to have on like a magnet or something. Um, that's really great. Um, so that's really cool. Okay. So they've, they hit that 60 mark with their SII or with their pure tone average. 
They're sent to you guys for some candidacy testing. At this point, what is what is um, your test battery for a child who's referred for a cochlear implant? Um, and how does that kind of fit in into the current you know guidelines for who's a candidate? So everybody who comes to see us gets a speech and language evaluation. So that's a very important part of our um, of our battery. We have a large group of a of a listening and spoken language um, specialists who do those evaluations for us, and they're really tied in with the. Um, educational teams in our area and across our state um, in terms of early intervention and within the schools. So they reach out to those providers as well um, to get them to be part of the process and um, get their input and in how well they think the kids are doing auditorily. Um, we do unaided evaluations and then we focus a lot of our evaluation on um, aided speech understanding. So we treat each ear individually and we look at how well are they doing on single words. Um, and then we look binaurally at how well they're doing in terms of sentence recognition and quiet and in noise. Um, we tend to follow kind of a modified version of the pediatric um, minimum speech test battery. Um, jumping, you know, we jump pretty quickly to the CNC words from the MLNT or LNT. They're, those are really okay. pretty easy. And we see kids a lot of times that'll come in and they'll be eight, nine years old, and they'll still be tested with the MLNT and the LNT. Um, and mm -hmm. what we're learning through our single-sided deafness study is, you know, we're testing kids, we're looking at normal hearing peers as controls, and then we're testing these kids with their normal hearing ear, and they're able to do CNC word lists. So they're four and five years old, and they're getting 80% word recognition. So that's wow. something we know kids with normal hearing are able to do, then um, we shouldn't be, if, if an eight or a nine-year-old is only able to do an LNT or an MLNT, that's a big red flag for us in terms of um, they're not understanding well enough to be able to gain new vocabulary. Sure. Yeah. So we function sure. a lot on that. We look a lot at that aided word recognition and then we bring it all together to kind of get a whole view of, of what the child is doing and talk with the family um, to see how well they're functioning in everyday life. Got it. For, um, so no, that answered that question perfectly. So with, um, now let's say through that process, a child does qualify um, according to whatever the candidacy criteria is at that time, as it's going to be changing all the time. What do we do when insurance has not caught up with our current mm. understanding of when a child should be implanted? Um, I, I'm curious what you're doing, uh, what your team is doing in terms of helping families through that process, understanding insurance coverage, anything you've seen in terms of how insurance coverage is expanding or getting better or getting worse. Uh, it seems to change all the time. Just when we think we kind of have a good idea of what's going to get approved and what's not, they change the rules on us. Um, we're really lucky in North Carolina. Um, Medicaid in North Carolina does a pretty good job of in terms of coverage. Um, so our kids that are on Medicaid, they do pretty well. I think the, the one thing that's difficult for us to get is bilateral simultaneous cochlear implantation for kids who are young. Um, we can get one ear done young, but we can't do two at the same time. Um, in terms of commercial insurance, it gets really tough. Um, it's because it, a lot of times we'll get the questions, does Blue Cross Blue Shield cover single-sided deafness? Well, it depends on your plan. Everybody's plan is a little bit different, and sometimes they're worded in such a way that it's, it can be interpreted as in the ear to be implanted, or sometimes it says that it has to be, you know, have a profound hearing loss in both ears. Um, so, but we're willing to, you know, go to bat for families. Certainly our doctors um, will do peer-to-peer -peer review. That's usually what it comes down to is the surgeon getting sure. on the horn and talking with the insurance people about, look, this is what the, this is what the research shows. This is how these kids can benefit. Um, and this is gonna be most cost-effective for you as an insurer also, um, if we can get this, child implanted and have more access to sound when they're younger. Um, so we rely a lot on our, our physicians. Um, they help a lot with that. You know, we have a really good team of uh, financial specialists who've been around the block with this a few times, and they know what kind of wording to use and how to investigate all of those um, different policies to try to get kids what they need. Got it. That's great. That's awesome that you guys have such um, involved physicians. I know in some programs that can be really challenging to even get that peer-to-peer -peer scheduled. Um, could you explain a little bit? I know since you're in the research setting, you probably see a little bit more um, 
of quote-unquote off-label cochlear implantation. Could you break that down a little bit further and kind of explain how that process works? Yeah. So um, when the when a manufacturer goes to the FDA and says, look, I have this device and this is how we want to be able to use it. So we, these are, this is how we've been able to prove that it can help this specific group of, of people, children in our case. Um, and the FDA said, looks at all the data and says, okay, you've proven that you can help this specific group of children and it's safe. So you can go ahead and market your device for that indication, for that reason. Um, and so that's what the manufacturer is able to do. Now, the physician can use their knowledge, can use what they um, know in terms of what's going on in research and what's going on for the specific child and say, I think that I can use this device for a different indication, perhaps for greater levels of residual hearing or single-sided deafness or a younger child than it's marketed for, than it's able to be marketed for. Um, and they can go ahead and do that. It's not something that's illegal or anything like that, but it's just called off-label use. So it's not how it's how the FDA has approved this device to be marketed, um, but the physician thinks that this is in the best interest of this child. And so that's how they go ahead um, and decide to use that device. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So in in a research setting where you guys are always trying new things to kind of see what the outcomes are, is that what most implantations would be for your team? Um, I think we still do. I think probably about, I'd say about 40% of the, of the, of the surgeries that we do are straight FDA approved, um, indications in terms of pediatrics, but we sure do. We do a lot of single-sided deafness cases. Um, and you know, I think, it's, it's pretty rare that we see a child who has profound bilateral hearing loss or even severe to profound bilateral hearing loss um, these days, especially if they're not an infant. Um, maybe they've had a progressive hearing loss. Occasionally, we'll see that see it that way. But um, in terms of kids who are not an who are not infants, who are a little bit older, they tend to have a little bit more residual hearing, definitely more than just fit in that severe to profound mold. Sure. Um, can we switch a little bit and talk a little bit more about single-sided deafness? I know that's something that you guys are really looking into more. And up to this point, the options for children with single-sided deafness have just been so limited. We don't really want to put them in a cross hearing aid because, you know, we don't want to plug up a normal ear if that's the situation or put them in like a rick with an open dome because they're a baby and that doesn't make much sense. So we can do a bone conduction device, but then that's dealing with a soft band and keeping that on the right spot and avoiding feedback just to get that signal to a good ear. So I know single-sided deafness is just kind of a really challenging area of pediatrics. Um, I'm curious, uh, what drew your team to researching that more and kind of where you see the, the research heading? So, you know, for all the reasons that you stated, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's such a challenge for kids, especially when they're little, and then you're just kind of leaving them out there while they're in their prime spoken language developing years, and their little brains are just so plastic and taking in all these inputs, and they're only taking it in from one side, and there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. So um, it's kind of was a shame there for a while, and then we did, yeah. we were doing our study with adults um, for quite a while, and the outcomes were so good for grown-ups so we said well shoot of course we have to bring this to kids and see if this is something that's um that's uh feasible for children and we had a couple of parents who had actually come to us um and we're just seeing how withdrawn their children were from socially um speaking and how tired their children were at the end of the day um, sure. And these were cases of kids who had had hearing and then lost hearing in one ear. Um, and then we started seeing some of these kids lose hearing in their contralateral ear as well. So we would hate to, you know, not implant an ear, especially we see this a lot in cases of CMV where they'll lose hearing in one ear and then gradually lose hearing in the other ear. But sometimes it can take years and years and years before they start losing hearing in the contralateral ear. So we don't want to ignore one ear and you know, then they start losing hearing in the other end. We go, oh, wait, let's go back and, and and implant that profound ear. And by then they're, you know, 10 years old and they've yeah. had this long length of deafness and they don't do as well with the cochlear implant. So we know younger is better for everything. So <laughs> we thought we should look at children and, with this. And so we started our study um, looking at kids um, who were three and a half. We started at three and a half because we wanted to be able to do word rec with them and we wanted to be able to at least attempt some masked um 
massive testing um, with them. Sure. So uh, that's why we only went down to three and a half. But um, outcomes have been really, really nice. And hopefully we'll start seeing some papers come out here soon. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I guess from there is the question more um, age of implantation. And, and uh, I mean, I guess, first of all, it has to be, well, I, I what, what we already said, what was the current approval for, for pediatric it's five. SSD? Yeah. It's five. It's okay. Five. So I guess pushing that down to three and a half is goal number one. I guess so. Yeah. That's where we're going to start. What's so tricky about, you know, kids with single-sided deafness is a lot of times we have no idea when they lost their hearing. So many of them passed their newborn mm. hearing screening, or we have quite a few who uh, failed unilaterally and then passed on rescreen. Like how many times they were rescreened, I have no idea. So we yeah. don't know, you know, really when they lost their hearing because then they refer it like the kindergarten screen or their pediatrician yep. and and we don't really know when they lost their hearing. So that's tricky um, when it comes to that group of kids. Absolutely. Um, so uh, some of the other things that you're looking at in your lab are um, spatial hearing and quality of life. Could you break those down a little bit more? How how you guys are measuring that, and and what kind of um, what kind of results you're seeing? So we have a spatial hearing setup. So we have a localization um, setup. So we have an arc um, that the kids sit in, and there are eleven different speakers, and they sit right in the middle, and they hear a speech burst that comes randomly from one of those speakers, and then they turn their head for that speaker. And we make we try to make it a little fun. We have little pictures above each of the speakers, and they wear a little headlamp, and we turn the lights off and we play a game or they're, they're trying to catch all the animals, you know, and so they turn their head and they look at the animal and lights up the animal and all that good stuff. So we're able to measure how well they um, can localize using that task. And we do at each interval, we do it with their device on and their device off because just like everything in kids, we want to make sure that we're measuring the actual impact of the device and not just that they're getting older and developmentally, they're better at this task. Um, sure. So we do that for localization. Um, we do hearing and spatially separated noise. So we start with the speech and noise. We use a speech masker. Um, we keep them both co-located. And then we look for spatial release from masking. So we're going to move that masker over to the implanted side or to the normal hearing side um, to see if we get spatial release from masking in both conditions. Um, so we do that for spatial hearing. And we also use... Um, the SSQ, so the parents fill that out as a proxy for the kids, um, and we look at, we're looking at all three subtests, but we're looking at the spatial hearing subtest in that one as well, and then okay. we're, we're looking at some fatigue measures and things like that. Um, we're having a hard time really figuring out the best way to measure fatigue in these kids, um, especially in our age group, because they're starting kindergarten, and now we have a pandemic, and everybody's tired all the time. So yeah. um, just those, those gross um, measures of, you know, looking at uh, questionnaire data, that's been tough. But um, um, some things seem to be a lot more sensitive than others, and the SSQ has been turning out to be a really good um, measure for us in terms of... Uh, looking at questionnaire data. That's great. Yeah. So I'm guessing that this data is really critical for your SSD kiddos because you really want to see that that change in localization abilities, you know, post-implantation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. And that's one of the first things that we see um, really happen. At about three months, we're already seeing a big difference in terms of how well they're able to localize. Um, it's the first thing that parents notice as well, that they're better able to tell where sound's coming from. So it's really exciting to see something right off the bat like that, that they can really feel good about and um, get feedback from saying, this thing is working. Like, they can tell where sounds are coming from, and it's a step in the right direction. So from there, we go to more more spatial hearing measures, and we really want to see that um, hearing and noise get better. Got it. Yeah. So that's actually my next question. I know from my experience, there's no there's no cutoff uh, length of deafness in terms of cochlear implant candidacy, right? Mm -hmm. But we know the longer that you go with a profound hearing loss in one ear, the harder it's going to be to kind of rehab that ear back into you know being able to make sense of speech. Do you have any insights into that so far with your research? Yeah, I don't really have answers there. And I, I don't know that, you know, in talking to colleagues, I don't know that anybody has a hard and fast answer. I yeah, think, yeah. I think what we all know is we, we think about these kids like the same way we think about kids who got a second implant years and years after they got their first. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't want to say, no, this isn't going to help you at all. But we certainly want to say be able to say, 
you know, this might not help you as well as it would help a three-year-old. You know, you might just get sound local sound awareness, and maybe that's going to help you localize. We don't really know. We just have to counsel yeah. really heavily. So for those older kids, we really, really encourage trials with a cross or a, or a bone conduction device um, before we go down the implant route. And make sure that we just counsel really, really heavily. I mean, I don't want to tell anybody, you know, we don't have the data right now to tell somebody no. Um, yeah. And, and we've had some surprises even in our clinic, you know, for kids that we thought had longer lengths of deafness. Again, going back to that, we don't really know when you lost your hearing. Um, and we've had some surprises, kids that did better than we, we expected. So we, we don't want to have to tell anybody no, but we do want to be able to tell them this is what you can expect. And we don't think you can expect much better than this. And then let them make their decisions from there. Yeah, that's great. That's really great advice. Um, in terms of uh, quality of life, what are your measures for that? What are you guys seeing? So I think our biggest thing that we're looking at is listening effort. Um, and we're using some of the subsets of the um, SSQ to look at that. Um, and we are definitely seeing um, improvements in terms of listening effort based on questionnaires. Um, and then just um, what parents are telling us has been really um, surprising. So these are families who were coming to us for an implant and, you know, their kids were taking naps after school and things like that. And, and they didn't, that had been their child status quo for so long that they didn't really know how tired their child was. Like they thought lots of kids take naps after school when they're in kindergarten. Um, mine sure. would have to pay her large amounts of money to get her to take a nap after school. She was in <laughs> You're begging her to take yes. a nap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they get their implant and they're not taking naps after school anymore. And so they didn't really know that they were as tired as they are. So um, things like that we're seeing and uh, kids who were just, you know, very fearful in no noisy situations. Um, one of our first kiddos, he had a space that he would go to whenever they had um, assemblies at school because he just couldn't handle the assemblies. It was too loud, too overwhelming for him, and he couldn't mm. even go in the gym. Now he's leading the assemblies. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, things like that are, are not only they were rewarding for us to see as, as audiologists, of course, but um, just to know that something like that is making such a huge difference in a child's life when for so many years we've just looked at single-sided deafness and thought, now oh, they'll learn to talk. It'll be okay. But it really affects these kids a lot more um, than just learning to talk. It's a really big social piece um, of their lives just to be able to have that spatial hearing and be able to function every day. Wow, that is that's so great. I, and I, I completely agree. The, the new research that comes out all the time when we look at listening effort and listening fatigue and how that's affecting a child, even, you know, with a unilateral hearing loss. It's, it's such a good point. It's for so long gone, you know, we haven't really looked into it as much and it, we're really seeing how it has such a huge impact. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of leads me to another question. So the reason that I first was thinking, oh, I need to have, you know, Dr. Park on this podcast was when I read your, your team's article that came out last year about um, CI wear time and, you know, reevaluating our current understanding of what is full-time use, what is all-day use, and kind of things that have just kind of been one of those, like that classic audiology joke where it's like, yeah, it's kind of always been that way, so I guess we'll just keep doing it that way, right? Mm -hmm. What other um, aspects of cochlear implant, the pediatric cochlear implants are, um, where do you think we need more research, I guess is what I was going to say. I guess sort of what are you guys looking at beyond just candidacy? And then also where do you think, you know, more research needs to be done? Oh, gosh, that's such a big question. <laughs> well, we can, we can just start with um, like other ways outside of candidacy that other things outside of candidacy that your team is looking yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, we're you know, a big piece of the research that our adult team likes to look at is um, – you know, we like to look at the surgical end of things too. We don't want to forget about our surgical colleagues. Um, so insertion angle, insertion depth, um, place of stimulation and how that impacts outcomes. So we're starting to bring that down to our pediatric group a little bit, um, looking at single-sided deafness and also EAS, um, electroacoustic stimulation. We do a lot of research into that. Um, so not only do we need to look at outcomes there, but we need to look at the best ways to program these kids. We're all just kind of, you know, doing what we know. Um, but we may need to really think outside the box in terms of what's the best way to program these kids. Um, looking at different ways of 
looking at candidacy, that's so important too. Our bimodal kids, you know, what are different ways that we can help encourage fusion of those signals um, together? Are there things we can do programming wise? And then I really think as we're getting younger and younger and younger with these kids, looking at different ways of providing the implant, you know, these kids are getting younger. They're not, they're, some of them aren't even sitting up yet. You know, they're still rolling around on the ground and you're implanting a seven month old. There are plenty of seven month olds who aren't sitting up yet. Um, and they're rolling around and they're knocking their processors off. And we know we, they need to wear them all the time from the second mm -hmm. they're implanted. How do we change this device so that they're wearing, they're able to wear it all the time and still roll around on the ground and do all the things they're supposed to be doing developmentally? Um, so those are some big challenges. I mean, there's so, so, so much ahead of us in terms of not just, you know, outcomes, how well are these kids doing, um, but how can we make it better and how can we access, um, get access to implants younger for kids? How do we know when they're not going to be able to um, make, as no make enough progress with that, those hearing aids? How can we predict that ahead of time? Um, you know, the surgical aspects are also really important. How can we predict what's the best array for this child? Um, sure. There, there's so much to do. We're, we're going to be employed for a long time. So anybody who wants to look into <laughs> research audiology, I would totally, totally, you know, doing the clinical thing along with the science thing. And we have a really great um, basic science um, team as well that we can, we get to work really closely with. Um, so there's, there's so much to do and, and we'll stay busy for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, since that um, that study was published last fall about device wear time, have you gotten any feedback from clinical audiologists on, you know, how that's impacted or families in, in terms of how that started to impact what they're seeing in performance for, for children with cochlear implants? I think we hear a lot more from early interventionists and speech pathologists. Um, it's kind of interesting how we stumbled on it. So um, I was working with uh, Dr. Gagnon, Erica Gagnon, who was uh, one of the co-authors on that paper. And we were looking at this because we thought, okay, well, of course, you know, wear time is going to impact how well they do with their cochlear implants. And so when we first started looking at that, we, we really weren't seeing a correlation. We just were looking at wear time and using your standard eight hour, nine hour thing. And then, you know, we both are parents of young children and we said, wait a minute, my kid sleeps a lot more often than your kid sleeps because they're different ages. <laughs> so everybody, mm -hmm. you know, the literature all says they wear them more as they get older. Well, they're also awake more as they get older. So we thought well, yep. we have to look at this differently. Um, and so we just changed our metric and did a little math. And that's where that math comes in again. Um, and then we found, <laughs> look, there is a correlation. So it's, it's not just about wearing it eight or nine hours a day. It's wearing it as much as kids with normal hearing have access to sound. Um, so yeah, just, you know, delving into those things and, 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 and really trying to figure out what you want to answer and thinking outside of the box is the way to go. And yeah, we hear a lot from speech pathologists and, and we have a lot of infographics that we've posted around the clinic. And I think those are helpful for parents as well. Um, especially when they have other children at home and you can say, okay, if this child is awake and they're around the same age, this child is awake and hearing, this child needs to be awake and needs to be hearing as well if they're awake. So, Oh, that's a good example. That's a yeah. really good way to show. And when they're a twin, the it's golden. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Twin, that's just cake. That's too easy. If he's awake and hearing, she's got to be awake and hearing. Yep, that's really yep. good. If he's taken in sound. He needs to take in sound too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay. So sort of thinking um, back to big picture with candidacy. Um, Let's say we have a child who, so like you mentioned with the 136 rule, hopefully, hopefully a child, let's just say with bilateral profound sensory neural hearing loss, they're going to have that diagnosis by three months of age, right? If, mm -hmm. if everything's going the way it's supposed to go, right? Right. In, in so, a perfect world, yeah. <laughs> in a perfect world. And I know that it's almost yeah. never <laughs> that. <laughs> So, but let's just say we are, everything is, is following that system right now. I know one of the most frustrating things about that process is saying, look, I know your child has bilateral profound sensory neural hearing loss. You want them to develop speech and spoken language. And the way that we get there is with a cochlear implant, but just wait for nine months yeah. 
and then we'll schedule their surgery. So at this point, I know you guys have more access to things with, with your center, you know, the ability to do more off-label or be a part of a study and that kind of thing. What would you tell current audiologists in terms of how to kind of navigate those conversations, like kind of counseling a family from diagnosis right now to at this point, hey, now we only have to wait six months. But what, what would be your advice for an audiologist who's, who's facing that conversation? Um, if it's an audiologist who's not linked in with a cochlear implant center, it would be to get that child linked up with the center um, as soon as possible. Um, not only because we want to get them on the path to early implantation and that that process takes time, but the implant center is going to have resources in terms of getting that family hooked in with other families or with support groups or with other resources um, that might help them along the way, um, help them with in terms of, you know, their how they're feeling, just somebody to talk to, those sorts of things, somebody who's going through the same things that they are or has already been through and can act as a mentor. Um, sure. So that piece is important. And, um, you know, the implant centers are going to work with the early interventionists and, and all of those things as well. Um, and, you know, to keep telling the parents that they do need to put those hearing aids on. Um, mm -hmm. They might be getting a little bit of something from it and every little bit counts. Um, and it's practice because the hardest, hardest thing we always tell parents when they get that implant on, the hardest thing is going to be to put it on all the time. It's going to feel like a full-time job putting that magnet back on over and over and yep. over again. So you might as well start with the hearing aids <laughs> and put them on and practice and practice and practice with that. Um, so I, I think some of our, what our um, audiology team, our diagnostic audiology team would say is to find out what the family's goals are as soon as possible and frame it in terms of if this is your goal, this is the way that we can best achieve that goal um, and start talking about cochlear implants early. You know, it's, it's that it's an option, that it's something that could help their child um, meet those spoken language goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a large um, listener base that are speech language pathologists. Um, your team, I know you mentioned that you have that the, the first step, or at least one of the early steps in terms of a candidacy evaluation is a speech language evaluation. Do you guys have SLPs on your team or what, how does that dynamic work? We do. So we have a team of SLPs and they actually push into our appointments. So we do, we call it a co-treat model. Um, so for all of our kids who are five and younger, the speech pathologist actually comes into those appointments. Um, and that's just so invaluable to us as audiologists because they're really talking with the families and figuring out what these kids are doing auditorily that goes so far beyond the audiogram, you know, when, and when they're so little and they're, they're, especially when they're too young to be able to do any really word recognition testing, um, information about what they're doing with learning to listen sounds and ling sounds and um, where they're at in terms of, you know, you know, repetition of sounds and I always find it fascinating what they're doing in terms of what are they, what are they, speech babble. Speech babble is yeah. so helpful for me when I'm programming. <laughs> I love speech babble. <laughs> I know it's not every SLP's favorite thing to do, but as an audiologist, it gives me so much information. Um, so just to have that speech pathologist there on the team and there as part of the visit is really, really great. So that's something we've started doing probably in the last five or six years. Um, it's been really, really helpful, especially for those young kids. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a big part of our, our model and, and we're really proud of it. And it's, it's, it, it, it's a good dynamic. Yeah. That sounds really, really cool. I haven't heard of a model that works like that, but I know one thing I see in my relationship, you know, with the auditory verbal therapist or the speech therapist who I have patients in common with is they have so much information that's so different from what I get in a session beyond like, you know, speech sounds and speech language development in terms of like interests and things like that. Sometimes, you know, the fact that the child has now recently become really interested in Thomas, the tank engine, mm -hmm. like that doesn't come up in my appointment, but maybe it did for them. And it's been really helpful in, you know, improving participation or something. And if I had that little piece of information, wow, would I get so much more done? So the fact that you guys are in that room together, it's like, 
that share of information is totally, you know, unimpeded. It's just everything yep. goes. Yep. Yep. And it's, and it's just threaded right into the appointment. So you just, you know, you're, you're working on your thing over here as the audiologist, but you're still overhearing the conversation that's going on with this speech pathologist in the family. And yeah, it's really, really helpful. That's so great. And I know another thing too, that, that comes with that, um, collaboration. We had uh, Dr. Crystal Warfel, who's a trained SLP, but she's a PhD now looking at literacy in children with hearing loss. Um, We talked a little bit about like how audiologists and SLPs can work together better. But another thing too, is that parents really retain information when it's told to them multiple times from multiple people. So as many times as we might have, you know, you know, the research that your team did, where we're looking more at like, what is full-time use? Well, like I can say it as many times as I want, but if I'm only seeing this family once every few months, whereas they might be seeing their SLP much more often. And so if we're both coming to coming to it with the same information, we're on the same page, I think, I think the family's much more likely to retain that information. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And come in, you know, the way that a speech pathologist might address some of those questions are different than the way that I might address some of those questions. And so between the two of us, some of us, something might, um, might strike a nerve with that family and, and help them retain that information better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so kind of wrapping up here, um, and I, maybe you don't have an answer to this. That's okay if you don't have anything like quite formulated. But uh, we also have a lot of listeners who are audiology students or undergrads in communication disorders. And so I'm curious, do you have any advice for them just as someone who's kind of seen a lot of different aspects of audiology, whether it's clinical or research, you're working collaboratively with others, you're presenting data, I mean, you're doing so many different things. Is there any advice that you would have out there for students? I would say just to observe and be a part of as many things as you can. I mean, we've seen plenty of students who come in and think they only want to do pediatrics, and then they find out that they really, really like geriatrics. Um, but you wouldn't know that until you experienced it. Um, and the same thing goes the opposite way. We see lots of people who only want to work with adults, and then they come into our clinic and they see the light and understand how wonderful pediatrics is. Um, <laughs> but just to experience that. There are so many little niches and things that you can get into in terms of audiology. And and it's hard to say that there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, as a pediatric cochlear implant research audiologist, I've really kind of <laughs> gotten myself into a little bit of a corner here, but I love my corner, you know, I don't want to yeah. come out of my corner. So if you find something you really, really want to do, and, and that's what, what, what motivates you, then do it. <laughs> That's so good. That's so, yeah, that is a very specific niche, but I feel like you have a good point. It took you a long time to find that one spot that fits you so well. Mm -hmm. And the importance is, you know, trying a lot of different things to find what's going to finally stick. Yeah, absolutely. Give it all a whirl and just experience it all. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Well, that's all about, that's just about all the time we have. Do you have, uh, would it be okay if you shared your email if anyone had questions? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Email is the best way to find me, and it's uh, Lisa underscore Park, P-A-R-K, at med.unc.edu. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right. Thank you for joining me. It has been such a pleasure to have you on. Um, Give me just a second. I'm going to switch us over to questions, okay? Okay. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.